Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we consider Your Word this morning and as we come to Your table in a moment, we do so in the realization that we, whether we are cognizant of the fact at all times, if we are Your people, we live as exiles in many ways. And it, it can be difficult for us to really trust that You have chosen it to be so. I pray this morning that as we continue in worshiping You and learning about You and experiencing You, that each of us would take a step closer to Jesus in faith. That in the power of the Holy Spirit, we would find our hearts being overwhelmed with His love once again, or for the first time, we ask in His name. Amen. Anybody remember the, the cult classic movie Swingers? With Vince Vaughn? Yeah? All the beautiful babies? Remember? Anyone? Swingers, if you haven't seen it, follows a group of struggling actors and entertainers that have all kind of recently moved to Los Angeles. And they're sort of living out in the wasteland of East Hollywood, and they're trying to break into this scene in more ways than one. They're, they're trying to get into to the acting scene that they want, you know, work. They want to be able to make it as actors, but they're also trying to kind of get into the just the party scene and, and the girls and all of the, as Vince Vaughn continually calls them, the beautiful babies. They, they want to get into this, this scene. And Mike, who's, who's played by John Favreau, is the main character, and he has just moved from, Los Angeles, or from New York City to Los Angeles. And he, he left behind this girlfriend, but she actually broke up with him like six months before he even moved. But he cannot get over her. And so throughout the movie, you just see him like on the phone leaving these just terrible five-minute-long voicemails telling her how much he misses her, and his friends are constantly trying to get him to break out of it. Mike is just this sad sack who cannot get over his ex, and even when he does meet a girl, he screws it up completely because he starts oversharing and gets really clingy and starts telling them about how he's going through this really bad breakup, and of course they want nothing to do with him. In many ways, Mike and his friends are living like exiles in Los Angeles because they're not at home and they're not really part of, of the culture in which they live. They want to be, but they don't even really know what to want. Mike can't decide if he should want to move on or if he should want to move back home and get back with his ex-girlfriend. As I said this morning, we're starting our series on First Peter and we're going to spend a good bit of time today setting the stage to think about who, who Peter is writing this letter and who is he writing it to and, and how does he want them to understand themselves as the church. And as the series continues, we're, we're calling it Everyday Christianity, and you're going to see that, that really we sort of are like Mike and his friends living in East Hollywood. We sort of exist in this plane between worlds, and, and it can feel like we're being pulled apart, and, and that's the people that Peter's writing to. It felt like they were being pulled apart, and he's writing to them to try to get them to understand what they're experiencing, that it's not a mistake, that it's actually part of the plan. And so really, the, the first two verses that we're looking at here today are kind of the boundaries of the swimming pool for the rest of the letter. So for the next number of weeks, as we go through the rest of the letter, we're doing so kind of in the parameters of these two verses. Peter's setting up some very important things for us to think about. So first of all, it's, it's written from Peter, by Peter. And he identifies himself as Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ. 
An apostle was a witness to the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth, someone who has been called and appointed by Jesus to lead this first generation of this new thing called the church, which is to say Peter is not writing this as a friend. He's not even writing it as pastor or leader. He is writing it under an immense weight of authority. He is writing it as a called out, appointed, chosen witness to the most disruptive person and event in history. God become flesh. God dead, God resurrected in the person of Jesus. And Peter had been with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. Jesus comes along and calls him out of his career as a fisherman. Peter's the one who always spoke first among the followers of Jesus. Peter's the one who through the revealing work of the Holy Spirit actually spoke the words that Jesus was the Messiah the chosen anointed one of God, the promised one that the Jewish nation had been longing for. Peter is the one who has the audacity to get out of the boat and walk on water. And he's the one who immediately falters in his faith and begins to sink and cries out for help. Peter is the one out of only three who experienced the transfiguration of Jesus. When the two primary prophets of Israel appeared to be walking with Jesus and there was a bright light and a voice from heaven comes and says, this is my son, listen to him. Peter was there. He heard the voice of God thunder across the mountain. He saw the radiant change in Jesus' face. Peter was the one who upon hearing Jesus speak of the death that awaited him in Jerusalem vows that it should never be so. Peter is the one to whom Jesus says, get behind me. Satan, you do not have in mind the concerns of God. Peter was the one who refused to let Jesus wash his feet, but upon hearing that without this washing he would have no part in Jesus, then demands that all of him, his entire being, be washed. Peter was the one who vowed never to desert Jesus, even if it meant death. Tradition has it that Peter was the one who struck off the ear of the servant of the high priest in an attempt to protect Jesus. But Peter was the one who fled. Peter was the one who followed at a distance when Jesus was arrested. Peter was the one who denied Jesus three times, fearing even just the penetrating glare of a young girl, cursing up a storm in an attempt to distance himself from the God-man Jesus. Peter was the one who wept bitterly at his own failure his own disowning of Jesus. Peter was the one who encounters the risen, fleshly God, Jesus, and is forgiven. Peter is the one who was asked three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter was the one that Jesus said would be the stone upon which the entire church would be built. Peter was the one who, filled with the Holy Spirit, stood up among his brothers and preached the gospel of Jesus crucified and risen. Peter was the one who had a vision of unclean things being made clean. The one who was told to speak the name of Jesus to Gentiles, to outsiders. Peter was the one who would eventually be dragged to Rome and crucified upside down. A final gruesome testament to the upending of his entire life by Jesus of Nazareth. From the moment of Pentecost on, from the moment when Peter encounters the Holy Spirit in a real way, he wanders around his own people as a stranger, embodying the very exile that he now attributes to the churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. 
Peter is the one whose entire life has been marked by failure and reconciliation to Jesus. He's the one whose entire life is now wrapped up in the task that Jesus has given to him to feed the sheep of God. And here he begins to knead the dough of spiritual bread in this letter to exiles dispersed throughout the empire. And the people to whom Peter is writing are most likely actual, literal, political exiles. The Roman Empire would often displace people groups in order to maintain control over such a vast area. But as we continue through the letter, we're going to realize that that Peter's actually playing on their literal political situation as a way of describing their relationship to the Roman Empire as people of the church, not just of their own nationalities. And within a few short phrases, Peter shows us that the church must understand herself rightly in relation to God before she can understand herself rightly in relation to the empire. And yet, it is a relationship to both. The church has a relationship that is vertical, that goes to God, and has a relationship that is horizontal, that goes out to the world around her. And what Peter does here, really, in just three words, is set up the parameters of what the church is, not just in the time and place of his writing, but in many ways what the church will always be until the end of the age. Chosen exiles dispersed. But Peter isn't just inventing the metaphor of chosen exiles that are dispersed. In fact, he's pulling it directly from the life of Israel, culled from the pages of the Hebrew Scriptures. All the way back, all the way at the very beginning, God chose one man, one family. And he said through this man and through his family, he would bless all of the nations of the earth. And that man was God. And the first thing that God asks of Abraham is exile. It's to leave his home, to leave family, to leave all that is familiar and journey to a place that will become home. But even when Abraham reaches the land of promise, we're told in the book of Hebrews that he wanders around like a foreigner, like a man in exile among kings, among peoples, a man awaiting a truer city and a better home. Centuries later, the descendants of Abraham are told that they will be brought out of slavery with a strong arm through miracles and signs and wonders and brought to a homeland. And an entire generation dies in the desert before reaching the land of promise. And there is a while, there is a period of time where Israel inhabits the land with the temple in Jerusalem and she worships God there. But even in that, even in dwelling in her own land of promise, worshiping the true God, Israel stands out as a stranger from among the nations. From the very beginning, Israel has been called out and set aside as something different. Her mission was always to be set apart as priests, people who reflect God to the world around them and who reflect the world around them back to God. If you have read any of the Old Testament, you'll realize pretty quickly, that Israel's track record was spotty at best. And eventually, she's removed from the land and forced to live, what? In exile. No temple, no home, no covenant. And for Israel, exile was viewed, and and indeed really was, a part of their punishment. But even in the midst of it, one of their prophets tells the people to settle in, to live like resident aliens among other nations, to build houses, plant gardens, raise kids, to do everyday stuff as God's people in the midst of the nations. Exile implies that there is a homeland, but that this is not it. 
This is the history of exile that, that Peter is drawing from, but he's not suggesting that the church is somehow being punished. He's not suggesting that the exile that the church uh, inhabits is identical to the, to the punishing exile of Israel. In fact, as we'll see in the coming weeks, he's actually viewing the church in terms of Israel because he views Israel in terms of Jesus. The people of the church are exiles in the world because of and in the same way as Jesus was an exile in the world. Jesus, the creator of all that is, the one in whom all people, all things are held together, came among his own people, and his own people didn't recognize him, didn't receive him. He wandered about with no place to lay his head. He was despised and rejected. He was reviled and misunderstood even by his own human family. Jesus, the God-man, God the Son who has existed from eternity past, who is all-powerful, all-glorious, all-knowing, subjected himself to the empire, to the brutal Roman Empire, and was ground to dust beneath her wheels. He allowed himself to be put on trial by Herod and Pilate, to have his fate chosen by the rabble, and to be executed by a foreign empire. And it's been said that for the church to be exiled means to be vulnerable with the vulnerability of Christ to live out of control, to suffer under a foreign power, to long for the homeland. If you read the pages of the gospel during the passion of Jesus, you'll realize that in a very real way, Jesus allowed himself to be exiled from his own father. So he took on sin and plunged into the darkness of hell and death. And what Peter is saying is that if you are a part of the church, you are living in exile because that's how the whole program works. That's how it's always worked. God's people have been marked out, pulled out from their original place in the world. But it's not just them. It's not just God's people. God himself enters into that exile with them in the person of Jesus. But exile isn't the only marker of God and his people. There's also the diaspora. And, and the word that we have here translated as scattered is really a, a farming word. It's an idea of a farmer out scattering seeds into his fields, and, and the seeds get worked down into the soil. And this was also a physical, political reality for the recipients of Peter's letter. The Roman Empire had scattered them among this part of the empire. But for Peter, the scattering is not random and it's not exile. In fact, it's not even ultimately due to the Roman Empire. No, the scattering is actually a huge part of God's plan. Because way back in Israel's day, the prophets would start talking about these really strange things that were going to happen. They talked about the nations of Assyria and Egypt, Israel's two most hated enemies. And what the prophets said was that there would be roads built from Egypt and Assyria, flowing into Jerusalem. And all peoples of all nations, even the enemies of God's people, would come into Jerusalem and worship God in his temple. Jerusalem would become a city without walls, they said. All nations, all tribes flooding in to the city of God to worship. And what Peter sees in his own lifetime is that it's happening. It's happening. Before Peter's eyes, the message of all things being remade in Jesus is what? It's going out to all ends of the earth. 
And he's writing to a letter to people scattered throughout a geographic area about the size of California. And they all speak different languages from each other. They dress differently from each other. They eat differently from each other. They look differently from each other. And yet they are all one people in Jesus. They all bear the name of Jesus. And they are all now engaged in worship of the true God. And almost none of them were originally Jews. All of them are outside people being brought in. What we see is that in the church, God is building a mosaic, but he is not content to have the mosaic cover just one corner of the earth. No, he wants it to cover the entire thing. So he shatters and scatters until people of all types, shapes, sizes, colors, and smells are brought together in a picture that covers the entire earth. And what Paul will tell us later in a different metaphor is basically that that picture is Jesus himself. And this is exactly what Jesus told Peter and the disciples would happen. That they would begin in Jerusalem. They would ripple out through all of Judea and Israel and the gospel message would keep going out into all the entire known world. But what they didn't realize is that the message would get sent out as the church scattered because of persecution. And Peter is writing to this fragile, scattered, shattered, persecuted, diverse group called the church to help them make sense of what's become of them. Because they're living as dispersed exiles. And the first thing that Peter tells this ragtag bunch isn't the obvious stuff. It's not the fact that they were in exile. They knew that. It's not the fact that they had been scattered. They knew that too. No, the first thing he tells them is that they are elect. They're chosen. And what he means by this is that the church is a creation of God. The church is not something that people came up with or stumbled into. No, the church exists as an eternal moment of divine grace. It is always, only, and forever the constant gift of God. And in the coming weeks, we'll see that Peter ties this into the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. The resurrection has happened not at the end of the age, but in the middle of the age. And it's in that rising that the church is birthed. And to bring in the Apostle Paul's metaphors, it is only as Jesus himself takes breath in resurrection that the church has life. It is only as Jesus himself pumps blood that the church has life. It is only as Jesus of Nazareth sits at the right hand of the Father that the church exists. And what Peter is saying when he says that the church is chosen is the exact thing that he was saying when he said that the church is exiled and scattered. The church is chosen because Jesus is chosen. Jesus is the divinely appointed one, the one of promise, the one upon whom the Spirit rested, bestowing the favor of God the Father. And again, to tie in the Apostle Paul, if you're part of the church, then you are in Jesus. You are in his choosing, his election, which means you stand in that. You live in his life. What Peter wants us to see is that the church at large or the church in town does not exist because we will it to exist. It doesn't exist through human effort, desire, or blood, sweat, and tears. It exists because God has willed it to exist. God has chosen. Not only that, but God has willed the church to exist as exiles, as dispersed. And this is not a reluctance upon his part. Foreknowledge does not mean that God had a videotape that he could fast forward and say, oh, I guess this is how it's going to happen, so I'll just decide that that's how we'll do it. No, this is him intentionally choosing. God designed it to work this way 
the church inhabits a Trinitarian existence. Do you see that in Peter's opening? We are chosen by the foreknowledge, the active divine will of God the Father, chosen through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit is the one who sets the church apart, who calls her out as exiles among the nations, giving her the fruit of gentleness and peace and love and joy and perseverance. And we are chosen in the obedience and blood sprinkling of Jesus. So what exactly does that mean? I mean, we're not really living in political exile, right? So it's a little bit difficult for us to, to engage with what Peter's telling his audience. And especially if you're here and you're not even part of the church, if you're here this morning and you say, I don't even know if I really can believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Well, what I would want to say to you is, first of all, we can't lie to you. It's not easy. It's not easy to be exiled. It's not easy to live as dispersed people. But I would, li- I would ask you to consider one thing. That perhaps, just like Mike from Swingers, whether or not you believe Jesus quite yet, you might actually feel exiled anyway. There's a good chance that in moments of silence, you, you can feel your heart is, is never at home, even when you go back home. And home is never what it promises to be. And, and memory is far more pleasurable than actually reliving. What is that? Have you considered the possibility that perhaps all your longing, all the ways that you're longing for acceptance and value and purpose have expressed themselves are just failed attempts at, at feeling truly loved, truly valuable, truly at home? And I would say, if, if you have felt that, then I can tell you, no matter how difficult it is to live as the church, as exiles, Jesus is your true home. He longs to give you that fulfillment. He longs to give you that purpose, that life. He longs to bring you in to this exiled, dispersed group of chosen people. If you are a part of the church, there's a good chance that you, at times, maybe not right now, but at times in your life, feel caught almost in a catch-22. Like you're just sort of living in this moral dilemma gray zone of how am I supposed to engage in the world around me? And, and still lay claim to the promises that God has for his people. Not only that, but, but you're actually going to hear some pretty difficult things from Peter. Peter has some rather difficult things for us to hear, much more to practice. And that's why we have to start at the beginning where he starts. We have to know that, that, that if you're part of the church, you have been chosen Chosen for exile and dispersion in the perfect obedience and blood sprinkling of Jesus. And you know what the result is? You know what the first and last and overarching result of that choosing is? It's grace and peace in abundance. Grace and peace are yours in abundance. Think about that. There is no other people group on this planet that has ever been formed through peace and and grace. Now, we always form our tribes through violence and self-assertion. But the church is not our thing. So if you consider yourself a part of the church, if you consider this church to be your church, remember that the church is not your thing. It wasn't started by you. It's not upheld by you. 
And what does that mean? It means that we can refuse self-assertion. We can refuse violence and hostility toward each other and the world around us because, because why? It's all a gift. It's just a gift that has been given to us. All we have to do is open our hands and take it, not to keep safe, but to simply embody. It is grace and peace that the church is not in charge of the world and that the people of the church are not in charge of the church. It is only by God's grace that we exist, and it is only in His peace. It's just one big gift. So smile. The only other thing that we have to remember when we think about the fact that as the church we can exist in grace and peace and the fact that we are exiles living dispersed is that we are longing for a true home. But don't get confused. The true home is not somewhere out there that we're waiting to just kind of float away and play some harps and have an idyllic existence on clouds. No, the true home that we're waiting for, the reason that all of us feel like Mike and his friends in Los Angeles is because the world is going to be remade. Our true home is actually here when it becomes fully real. That's the thing that we're living for. We're living for the time when Jesus comes back and lives with his people in this place and redeems all of creation finally. And that's how we can exist as exiles that are chosen in grace and peace. Friends, in a moment, we're going to come to the table and we are going to experience grace and peace together. We are going to experience the choosing of God because Jesus was exiled on our behalf, because his body was literally scattered apart like so many seeds in a diaspora. So if you're willing and able, before we do that, we're going to confess our faith. And this is a way for us to align ourselves with all Christians everywhere, to remind ourselves that this particular church in this particular place is only one little part of what God has been doing. So if you're willing and able, would you stand with me and confess your faith along with all Christians? This is from the French Confession. Christian, what do you believe? We believe that God, in sending His Son, intended to show His love and inestimable goodness toward us giving him up to die to accomplish all righteousness and raising him from the dead to secure for us the heavenly life. Thank you. You may be seated. When Peter tells these exiles that they have been chosen to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, he is hearkening back to a time when God made a covenant with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And the people were sprinkled with blood, literally, physical blood. And when God called out priests from among those people, they were sprinkled with blood. And they had blood sprinkled on their garments as a sign that they had been set apart and that that setting apart requires sacrifice. And each week here, we celebrate communion. And we come to this table, and it's a little bit strange because we see bread and we see wine, and yet we pray each week the Holy Spirit would make this to be for us the body and the blood of Christ. Why? Because that's our life. That's us being marked out. And as we'll see later in this letter from Peter, we have been called out. If you're a part of the church, you've been called out not just as exiles, but as priests, people who have that holy duty of reflecting God to his world and his world back to him. And so 
If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, if you have not yet been baptized into His church, don't come and allow His blood to be splashed on your lips because it's not yet true of you. We want you to come to this table soon. I would love to talk with you about how you can come into the church through baptism and experience this feast along with us, but don't yet do something that's not true of you. And yet, if you are a Christian, come. Come and be sprinkled with His blood. Eat His flesh, drink His blood, and live in grace and peace. Let's pray together for our meal. Father, it is only by faith that we can trust that you have chosen, that you have chosen to use your church, to dwell in your church through your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we can never consider enough your death on our behalf, your resurrection that gives us life, that has literally birthed us into a new existence as one body. Holy Spirit, would you cause this bread and this wine to be for us the body and the blood of Christ? Let us eat in unity and peace and love. May we be filled with your fruit. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.